a Podcast One production. Welcome back to The Great Qantas Hoax, Part 2. In 1971, it was possible to smuggle a bomb onto a plane. Peter Macari proved that when he fooled Qantas with a barometric bomb. It turned out to be a hoax, but the airline knew it was vulnerable and had to pay up on the threat. So what have airlines learnt from those days? And how would today's pilot handle the pressure? I'm James Nixon, a retired A380 captain. I retired after 31 years flying, 18,000 hours. I flew for Emirates, a number of airlines, and before that, Ansett Australia, and uh, flew the 727, which is very similar to the 707 that we're talking about today. I've retired to the life of a writer, Adam. You know what it's like. Uh, (laughs) It must be difficult, though, coming off that vivid, intense experience of flying aircraft to suddenly being on the ground. How's that been? Well, uh, you miss takeoff and landing, especially the A380. I spent, uh, since I was 10 years on the A380, pretty much, or eight years, and it was really the most spectacular aeroplane to fly. You miss takeoff and landings, but you don't miss being up in the middle of the night uh, flying from hotel room to hotel room, uh, and you don't miss um, sleeping in your own bed. I sleep in my own bed every night at night time. There's this big white ball in the sky, Adam. I don't know if you know about it, but it comes up in the morning and it's just spectacular. If you could actually be asleep when that thing comes up in the morning, it's just heaven. And how long has it taken to actually reacclimatize to daylight hours, nighttime hours that the rest of us have? It's been four years and I've kept my, my medicals up the same as I had when I was flying because when I retired, I thought it's a good idea to keep up the six monthly medicals. And my doctor says every time I see him, he says, says you know, you're more relaxed now than ever before. So it's taken four years and I'm still getting more relaxed because you just don't realise the, the heightened level of tension in your life when you're in charge of 575 people and a $400 million asset and the, the pressure of, of fuel saving and being on time, on time departures, on time arrivals and air traffic control and not controlling your life, having it controlled by a person in a roster office who gives you a roster once every month. So for tw- 31 years, like not being able to plan a concert or a, a holiday or a wedding because you're working month to month, uh, it's tough. Living and sometimes dying for the job. People do die for the job, you know. And one of the reasons I retired early was uh, I've had two friends die from deep vein thrombosis and uh, both of them were younger than me. And uh, and it really shocked me that uh, you can die doing this job. And who wants to die before you get the chance of retirement? I mean, the reason we do all this stuff is so that we can retire to to a writer's life. Yeah. Let's go to 1971. Right. You're Captain William Selwyn. You're at the controls of QF755, headed for Hong Kong from Sydney. You get a message. You're at cruise altitude by now. You get a message from the ground. They've had a call that there is a bomb on the plane. And they've also ascertained the nature of the threat. There's a replica of the bomb in a locker. And they found that that replica, 
It's actually a working model, not a replica. It's a barometric bomb that is set to go off at 20,000 feet. That's all the information you have. Put yourself in that seat with Captain William Selwyn. What would be the checklist you'd go through first? Well, it's called a red or a green bomb threat. This is obviously a red one, which has been determined to be real. And to be real, it means that it's got a tail number on it, like either the the airplane's flight number or the registration. And it's been deemed to be a, a real threat by a whole host of people before the pilots get to hear about it. The airlines have these amazing security teams and they work together with the police and all the stakeholders before they pass any information up as a red or a green threat. If it's a red threat, that means we're, you know, seriously, we believe it's true and we're going to tell you about it. The first thing I do as the pilot in command is contact them again, either by satellite phone. These days it was probably radio, uh, maybe high-frequency radio phone. Um, And you say, just confirm you got the right airplane. Important. (laughs) It's the most important thing and most people miss that, you know, because they launch into these great procedures and they go, oh, sorry, I've been flight number 21, not 31. And suddenly another uh, pilot. That's it. You know, so, so you really want to make sure when you're talking about bombs, we've got to talk about a lot of different things. Most bombs that uh, we deal with are family law issues, you know, so that's someone who's upset and wants to uh, make a statement. You know, terrorism bombs are very rare and uh, usually they don't tell you about them beforehand, like the IRA blowing up the Air India over, over the RSC. So it just goes bang and, you know, we find out about it years later. Pan Am, Lockerbie, no warning at all. They claim responsibility for it afterwards. So when they tell you it's a pressure bomb and you look at your altimeter and you're sitting in the cruise fat, dumb and happy, and in those days, everyone was smoking in those days, you know, with cups of coffee, cigarettes out. You know, it used to be the, the phrase was gear up, flaps up, smoke's out, you know. And so clouds of smoke in the cockpit, guys drinking coffee, we're up for an eight-hour jaunt, we're sitting at 35,000 feet and they tell you you've got a pressure bomb that goes off at 20,000 feet. Well, you know, at 20,000 feet, the bomb didn't go off. We're now at 35,000 feet. So if it's real, then the bomb's inside with us because the cabin is at 8,400 feet. Where we are is 8,400 feet. So let's explain what that means, pressurisation and how it works. So you get yourself a bottle, okay, a bottle, and you blow air into the bottle, put your mouth around the bottle, and you blow as much air as you can into the bottle. So you're putting air into the bottle, and it's got more air pressure inside the bottle than outside. Say it's an old Coke bottle. So we're now going to put a tiny little hole in that bottle with a knife, and the air's going to escape out of there. Still, the air inside is more than the outside, and that's what we're doing with an aeroplane. We pump air in from the engines, and it goes out a hole which we call the outflow valve, and we regulate the size of that hole, and that keeps the pressure at pretty much the same as Mount Kosciuszko in these old aeroplanes. In new aeroplanes, uh, A320s and and, uh, 737s that fly domestically, it's all about Mount Kosciuszko height. In the A380, it's uh, Falls Creek, and the 787, it's Mount Buller. So that's the difference in altitudes. Remember that the 
air pressure always goes from high to low. So the outside of the airplane is very low in air pressure, so the air is always wanting to go out. So if someone shoots a hole or makes a bomb, then the air is going to go out the hole rather than the outflow valves. And the outflow valves, which have been regulating the pressure of the aeroplane, they just close because now the air is going out the hole from the bullet or from the bomb. So that's why you see in the movies all the everything rushing out the hole because that's what's now doing. The air is now going out that hole rather than the outflow valves. And so the danger is having a high differential pressure from the inside to the outside, because then it rushes out faster, doesn't it? Like a balloon blowing up, you know, when you blow up a balloon, it explodes. So really what we want to do is get the pressure inside close to the outside. We still want to have a bit of a difference so that everything goes out. So if there's a bomb, it uh, blows up, everything goes out rather than in and damaging the passengers and everything else. So we keep a differential pressure. So we're going to say to ourselves, okay, well, firstly, this bomb didn't go off when we passed 20,000 feet. The cabin's never going to get to 20,000 feet because it goes from zero to 8,500 and it stays there all the way. And then we land, it goes back down to zero from when we land. So my gut feeling is I don't have a pressure bomb on this aeroplane and I don't care much about it. It's when they tell you it's a timer, then you've got real problems. And in this case, the ground crew had the benefit of the working second bomb. Right. Which had uh, an altimeter Mm -hmm. attached to it, sticks of gelignite properly set up, but there was no timing device. Right. So we know there's no timing device because that's a real danger. If you've got a pressure bomb with a timing device which could be armed after a few hours because then you're in trouble because they could actually arm it for when you're in the cruise, so when it descends and the altimeter unwinds, then it goes off. But it hasn't got a timer. It's just a pressure device. And it was on the ground when they put it in the aeroplane, and it's at 35,000 feet now, which is the most differential pressure you can have in a 707. And so all that can happen is that you can come down now and land, and the pressure's not going to set it off. Third possibility unlikely in 1971, but someone could be carrying the bomb Mm. onto the aircraft and manually set it off, a suicide bomber effectively. Yeah, in which case pressurisation, pressure's got nothing to do with it. Exactly, he could just detonate the bomb anytime he wanted. That's right. And he's not going, and and, you know, he's pulled a piece of string through a a briefcase. He's not going to have a a pressure situation. And also then it's the air, the pressure inside the cabin and he can't control that. So they don't do that. They'll just pull the switch and blow themselves up. And you can't tell when that's going to happen. And they don't tell you they're going to do it in advance anyway. So that's very, very unlikely. But here's the thing. We can make assumptions based on an absence of data, Hmm. like it didn't blow up. Yep. um, Or it's unlikely that there's someone on the plane, X, Y, Z. But is that good enough data to make a definitive conclusion as a pilot? So you have to treat everything if it's real. If they've told you that you've got a a red bomb warning, you have to do the procedure. You have to assume that 
we have to deal with something. So if it's based on pressure, we're going to do the pressure situation, which is takes a long time because you want to get the aeroplane down to about 2,000 feet above the, the level that you reckon it's going to go off. You want to pressurise the plane so that there's a one, th- one PSI, one pounds per square inch gap between the inside of the aeroplane and the real altitude of the aeroplane. And you're going to come down and you want to come down so you don't hurt people's ears. So that's less than 500 feet per minute. So if you're 20,000 feet, it's going to take 40 minutes to get on the ground. You know, it's going to take a while. So uh, what you do is hover around Botany Bay and you'd call out the Navy and you get all the ships ready and the fire brigade and just in case it did go off uh, and you would take it slowly. Which is exactly what they did. Yeah, the other option is high-speed dash for cash, where you, you have a gut feeling or some knowledge tells you that it's going to go bang on a certain time. And so two scenarios. Number one, I've got a racing plane. I'm an F1 driver in an aeroplane. Watch this. No one's going to fly this plane faster than me so that I can get this plane on the ground, parked, precautionary evacuation, or an emergency evacuation using the slides, or a precautionary evacuation using the slides instead of the steps, so you can actually limit the types of evacuations you do, and get everyone off the aeroplane. And so we're sitting in the bar in the terminal building watching the firemen deal with the bomb when it goes off, or the army guys, because they're they're really good. They've got big suits and, you know, we like to sit there and watch that. So, So my job is to be a racing car driver, get the plane there fast. When it's close to the bomb going off, though, or when there's any chance of the bomb going off and I can't really tell or control it, I want to make sure I can land the wreck. So I'm going to configure the aeroplane for landing. I'm going to get it to the turbulence penetration speed because, you know, the turbulence from outside, from thunderstorms and clouds is much worse than most bombs. So these aeroplanes are designed, you know, you can grab these aeroplanes and get the wings and almost touch them over the top. That's how much flexibility is in these planes. Otherwise, they'd, imagining that. otherwise they'd be too brittle to fly. So they have to bend around all the time. So we have a speed that we fly that aeroplane that can handle massive turbulence. If we've got time and we can find the bomb, because one of the first things we're going to do is look for it, and we're going to use a special few code words that we'll use over the PA just to get some people who are expert bomb disposal experts who just happen to be flying with us. Like, and this happens a lot if you're going to somewhere like Afghanistan and you're going up to um, the Middle East, there's a good chance you might have some of these specialists who are actually flying with you as passengers. So, you know, get And every- you'll know that ahead of time? No, you won't. But you won't. You'll, you'll use a special phrase on the coded phrase on the PA and these guys are trained to jump up and, you know. Is that right? Yeah. So wow. um, So they're always on duty in a sense and they're, when they're flying yeah, on a commercial yeah. aircraft, they will have a, a, a prearranged code when they have to swing to action. If you're a bomb disposal expert, it's like calling for a doctor, except when we call for them, we'll be using words that, and phrases that no one understands, but they will. Let's not reveal those codes. We're not allowed to reveal that. So, so we're going to look for the bomb. So the cabin crew uh, look for the bomb anyway. Every day when they get to well, work. Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Before anyone flies, yeah. what happens before you take off? Before and- every flight, we know there's a bomb on the plane. Okay? So that's when we go to work, we know we've got a bomb on the plane. As you assume. Well, 
Yeah, we assume every plane's got a bomb on it. Yeah. When you go to work. And so when you see these girls and boys and the cabin crew wearing the nice pretty uniforms, you see them as cabin crew. I see them as firefighters and bomb experts because that's what they do when you're not on, on the airplane. So we all go to work together as a crew. The pilots go on the flight deck. When we go on the flight deck, we do a bomb check for everywhere in the cockpit. And then the cabin crew, each one gets their own area. So each, when you're in an emergency, if you're sitting in a plane, your cabin crew is looking after the 30 people in your area and he or she will live or die to support and save you guys. And she also looks after you for uh, service, but also medical. So, you know, she's the first person who's going to notice you're having a heart attack because that's her job. They will also check for life jackets because people knock off the life jackets underneath the seats. You know, to use on their boats, but we want to make sure there's really they every, do that every flight, every flight. So they're doing a they're checking for life jackets. I never even thought of doing that. <laughs> I don't have a boat. <laughs> That's right. Now you can get a life jacket before you get a boat. And um, they're looking for needles in the seat backs. A lot of people, you know, drug addicts leave their heroin needles inside the the seat pocket. So after the cleaners have been through the airplane and after the uh, caterers have been off the airplane, then the cabin crew come on and they do a security check and they go through their whole area. And if you're the poor sucker that's working in the galley, you've got to pull out every one of the standard drawers and every one of the, the galley carts and check every one of them to make sure there hasn't been a gun or a bomb or a knife because it's not only bombs we're looking for. We're looking for for someone to plant a knife or a gun or something like that. So they've done that complete check and that takes 15 minutes and nobody can interfere with the cabin crew while they're doing that check. And if the caterers... Uh, have to bring on some more first-class meals or something and they didn't have enough so they've come back to the aeroplane before to, while the passengers are coming on, you'll notice that the cabin crew will completely surround that area and then they will receive the food, put it in there and then they'll do the whole check again inside that galley so they can do small areas. And if a passenger gets taken off the aeroplane, say, for example, someone says they're sick or someone says their kids just rung them and said, like, they've got to get off the aeroplane now because some reason, what happens to that passenger is they get taken by the police and put in the airport jail for the time that the plane's in flight. And after they've left the aeroplane, all that area has been checked again because they might have come on the aeroplane planted the bomb or the gun or whatever and then used the excuse that, oh, I have to get off the aeroplane now, which is a, a problem. So we just say, great, well, you're going to sit in this room until the plane's landed in its destination and if the plane's going from Dubai to San Francisco, you're going to have to wait 16 hours. My guest is James Nixon, retired airline pilot and now aviation writer. Back in the day, commercial pilots were actually trained in bomb disposal. That's not how it's done these days. For today's pilot, it's all about getting the passengers and what's left of the company asset back on the ground. 1971, we were just on the dawn of terrorism, effectively. Munich Olympics, 1972, um, and things went on for the, the age of hijacking went after that. But this all came from Rod Serling's movie, The Doomsday Flight of 1966. He later complained that uh, he, he wished he hadn't done this that, and there were, there were copycats around the world and so forth. But So the state of aviation in 1971 would suggest that there were vulnerabilities. So the Qantas management and the pilot had to on balance believe there was a device on board because they knew the vulnerabilities. So 
could it be said that this incident and others like it led to a greater advancement? Oh, com- completely. You know, I one of my first airlines, I did a bomb disposal course. Uh, now they don't let pilots anywhere near bombs. You know, that's a great idea. The plane has a bomb. Why would you have the person who can fly the plane in an emergency with the plane falling apart who's got all those special skills, what are they doing underneath the bomb with a pair of tin snips, you know? The blue or the red wire. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What do they tell you? <laughs> Just cut all oh, the wires? I, I cut all of them down. <laughs> I mean, you know, bombs are very, very simple things, really, and that's what the problem we have with them for police and everybody is that, you know, you don't need to have a rocket scientist degree to make a bomb. In fact, there's some people, you know, who have got very few brains who have made bombs. So with that knowledge... Uh, our job as a pilot is now to fly the plane safely and fly the plane after the bomb's gone off because that's, you know, we've got a whole heap of procedures for that. Right. Now, those poor guys at Qantas in 1971, they had no idea. Like, as you say, it was an evolving thing. We're doing stuff today. We learn from those guys. And so that aeroplane and all aeroplane, but even then on the 707, uh, has a least dangerous bomb location area built into it. So we, if we expect we're going to have a bomb go off, we take that bomb and we put it in this area and we prepare this area so that the bomb goes out. So there's a spot on the plane, we won't say where it is, I don't know where it is, pre-designed. Yeah. If you have a bomb and you find it, you take it to this location. Yeah. Explain that. Okay, so the problem with uh, stuff going out in a big way is that it goes in to engines and things. So when you've got a four-engine plane like an A380 or a 747, as captains, we always train to lose two engines rather than one on takeoff. So in in your simulator checks every six months, you're doing an engine failure on takeoff. And the first officers, they get to do one. And the captains, they often get to do two. So one engine goes and then a a few minutes later, the second one goes. How does that happen? Because of the debris that flies out of the first engine gets sucked in to the other engine, like the outboard engine, which is a bit further behind on the wing, and that gets all the stuff sucked into it. Next thing you know, you've got two engines failed, which makes it really hard to control. So it's bad enough to fly an aeroplane when the bomb has gone off because we've lost the structural integrity of the aeroplane and we've lost pressurisation, which are only two things to worry about. But if you two do big it, things. Well, two big things, but it's still flyable. I mean, you know, there's, as John Ulm told us, uh, these guys from the Second World War, they, they flew planes back to England after being over Germany, which were shot up completely. You know, there were holes in the wings. You know, there were Lancasters that had so many holes in them coming back from bombing raids that they were flying across the English Channel, 28 miles, in ground effect. Like, like a little hovercraft. So ground that, effect? Yeah, ground effect. So they were so low that the pressure of the, underneath the wings was holding them in the air. And when they got to the White Cliffs of Dover, they've gone, we can't climb. Because there's so the no, space between the, the wings the wing and, the and, the, and the water was keeping the thing going. And so when they got to the White Cliffs of Dover, they're going, I can't get up the hill. You know, they couldn't climb to get over the cliffs, so they, they just crashed, crashed the cliff. onto the beach. Well, onto the cr- beach, you know? yeah. And so it's amazing what these planes can do when you when you disable them. But you don't want to disable all systems. We've got 23 systems in every aeroplane, ranging from the toilet flushing to the doors to the, you know, pressurisation, electrical engines, brakes, the whole lot. 
you don't want to have more than one system disabled. So we've got a structural problem with the airframe, which is bad enough, and we've got pressurisation, which is bad enough, but we've got engines and stuff we want to make sure are safe. So we have the, the bomb location is behind the engines so that nothing can go into the front of the engines is going to damage us. And they usually have all the controls of the aeroplane down one side towards the tail and everything so that if the bomb goes off, it doesn't damage any cables for hydraulics and, and uh, control cables and things like that. So it's a very specific area and they just design it when they build it into the airplane. So my problem is how, how am I going to find the bomb? Okay, so the cabin crew, they're really good at that. They'll find it in seven minutes. Within seven minutes, pretty much I can have the whole airplane searched. And when you've got 20, you know, 26 on an A380 or you've got um, four on a 737 now, the is pretty well defined and they can find it very quickly. Okay, so we go, are we going to move it or not? We don't know because it may have a switch underneath it which is holding it to the seat and if you move that bomb then you blow the bomb up so we've got a little sneaky system for that that anyone can can learn and so that are we going to move it or not so before we move it we prepare this area and we do that a special way because we want the blast to go out not in towards the passengers and there's a special way we can do that too so you're going to do all that as well as do the procedure for pressurisation. And that's what these Qantas guys did. And they got themselves over Botany Bay and you just come down slowly, slowly, slowly. When you get to a point where it's safe enough and you think we're going to land, we want to configure the aeroplane for landing so that if the bomb does go off now, we want to have it go off after the gears down unlocked and after the flaps are in, in position so we can fly slowly, which is what we want to do for landing. And so we do all that and then we do the approach and landing, and then they take it to a special place at the airport, uh, which is where every airport's got a place where the bomb goes off. So, you know, <laughs> the passenger's expecting to go to the terminal. No, that's not going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen when it taxis in. And so they'll taxi to this special area on the airport, and that's where all the emergency stuff's going to happen. Scenario two, you have to explode the bomb in the air. What happens then? I have to explode the bomb in the air. Assuming that it is an altimeter bomb and it's it's been armed with a timer, so you simply cannot go down through that that level without it blowing up, what would be your approach then? Um, well, then we're going to get everything ready for landing. Okay, so we're going to put the gear out and flaps out. You can't put out flaps above 20,000 feet, but you're going to probably do that. And you, you really, 20,000 feet's a bit too high to put the gear out, but you'll do all that. You'll get the airplane configured for landing and then uh, wait for the bomb to go off. And you try and work out where, it's, where it is. Uh, you've found it's not in the cabin, so it's got to be somewhere like the cargo compartment or the wheel wells, somewhere like that. So you're going to try and make sure the passengers are kept safely together. You know, put them all in one area if you can, if you've worked out where you think it could be. You know, you're going to speak to the ground people by this stage because you've got lots of time. You know, that plane had enough fuel to go all the way to Hong Kong. So, you know, you've got to burn down to landing weight for a start or dump fuel. And you think, oh, am I going to start dumping fuel? I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I might just spend time because we want to make sure we're prepared to do everything correctly here. So assuming you can find the bomb, you've got that prearranged area where you can detonate bombs, hmm. um, you've, you can blow it up and the force will go outwards, but you've still yeah. got to get the plane to the ground. Sure. But... What you're saying is the systems are so advanced now that this can happen at 20,000 feet and you can still land the plane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's certainly. The things that were affecting us are engines and wings. If you've got wings and engines, it's going to work. 
If you've only got wings, you're a glider. It's going to work. So, you know, even that planes that get hit by missiles, you know, they still are intact as aeroplanes. They don't sort of vaporise into nothing. Usually the missile takes out an engine or part of the wing. Uh, the wing on an A380 is so overdeveloped that you could probably lose a third of it and it'll still fly quite okay because it was designed for a much longer aeroplane. Depends on the weight of the aircraft, uh, how much lift it needs. So if you can get it to the location and it goes, the damage is in that location area, the rest of the aeroplane will fly okay. What you want to make sure is there's no config changes. So you want to make sure that the gear's down and the, and the flaps are uh, set as much as you can, maybe flap three rather than flap four, and uh, get the plane flying slowly. And then you just come down through the level. Bang, if it goes off, well, you're ready for it, waiting for it. And uh, in those days, the problem for those guys was the 707, which is like the old 747, 727s. The oxygen was delivered by pipes. So they had bottles of uh, oxygen in the cargo compartment, and then it was piped to all different areas around the aeroplane. And so if by chance something happened to an oxygen bottle or the plumbing, then passengers could be left without oxygen, which is a real issue, especially if you're coming down slowly, right? So these guys will have uh, had to think about that and also the amount of oxygen for the pilots is not as much as you would have thought in those days uh, because the Oxygen was, is designed just to get you down from 35,000 feet to 10,000 feet on 100% oxygen. So they were, at some stage after the bomb would have gone down, they would have certainly got the plane down to 10,000 feet as fast as they could. These days we have an oxygen generator above every passenger, which is activated when you pull the mask down, it turns it on and it generates up to 20 so minutes of oxygen. each and every passenger or row... Yep has that oxygen generator. And... Very reassuring to know It's well. nice to know. And every second row has an extra one because you might have babies or you might also be have a flight attendant walking past and she needs oxygen as well. So every second row is four and every other row is three and the mask come down and you don't activate it till you pull the mask down. The difference we find now is that because they're chemically generated oxygen systems, they get really, really hot. And there's a lot of dust on top of them because where they are in the passenger service units, no one ever gets up there to clean it. So there's dust on top of them. They get really, really hot while the passengers are breathing it. And passengers get really freaked out because well, it's the first time they've ever been in a situation like this before. So it's all, we call it the rubber jungle. Rubber jungle. Every, everywhere you look is, you know, bits of plastic hanging down and yellow and everything. And you pull this down, you start breathing. Next thing you know, there's this burning smell. Wow. You know, you think this is, we're on fire, we're on fire. That's just the, the dust on top of this canister getting really, really, really hot. And so um, this is added to it. But that's a, a situation that would happen today. Yeah, because it is a moment when the rubber jungle appears. I think it's a terrifying moment. I mean, uh, for most people, so it is for the for, for pilots and engineers too who do it by accident. When these uh, engine, I've heard of stories of in the hangar of they get an airplane in for a sea check, and uh, someone presses the rubber jungle when they when they're getting the airplane ready for doing a sea check, and the apprentice looks out and sees you know the whole plane full. Can you get them back in there once you've done yeah, it? Yeah, you can you do can. that. You fold them all it's up good. and just stick them back one at a <laughs> it's time. It's a big job. My record is three rows of oxygen masks during a landing. I know one guy who uh, did a hard landing one day in a 727 and dropped 12 rows. So one can never underestimate 
the danger at 35,000 feet. But when you look at what happened with Qantas Flight 755, they handled it pretty well. Extremely well. In hindsight, we love to go through every one of these situations and say, oh, I would have done better than that. But, of course, it's the guy in the seat at the time. He's the captain and he's making all these decisions and he's got to make himself happy before he commits to a landing or, or any action. So we've got to say to these Qantas guys who got that plane down on that night with that technology and that weather and everything else, they did a spectacular job. Listen, I guess we've talked a lot about the extreme situations here in aviation and the, the potential and how they're dealt with, but really, let's get this in perspective that still flying is statistically much safer than virtually any other kind of transport. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think the only, only thing safer than flying is really is elevators. You know, elevators move more people every day in the world and it's just incredible, the safety procedures in elevators, which which nobody knows about. You know, they're quite in- incredible things. But really, the elevators and aeroplanes are really the two things you want to move around in because there's so much that goes into preparing them and maintaining them and operating them safely. So people can have great confidence that, that the lessons have been learned. I mean, there's that great saying that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And in the aviation industry, the consequences of not learning from those lessons are just massive. We've studied every one of these crashes in the classroom completely. We've run the scenario time and time again in the simulator. So I'm not worried about anything that I've read about that's happened in the past. I'm worried about the thing that hasn't been written about in the future. That's what's going to crash the next aeroplane. Captain James Nixon retired. Thank you so much. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Adam Shand at Large is a Podcast One Australia production. 